24 hours And you spend a third of them asleep Half of what remains you will spend working And the rest are yours to waste or keep I am spending far too many hours Pushing little buttons on my phone Why am I afraid of silence? Would it be so bad to be alone? With us today, we have a very special guest. Georgia Stitt is joining us. Uh, Broadway fans know Georgia because she is multiple things. She's a composed lyricist, a music director, a pianist, a music producer, and she has written shows like Snow Child, Samantha Spade, Ace Detective, Big Red Sun, The Water, and Mosaic. And you're also working on a few projects here, The Big Boom with Hunter Foster, Blind Spot, and an entitled oratorio for Titus Burgess. So Georgia, welcome back to Broadway Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always say I wish everyone had the experience of having their bio read to them. It's like your your biggest accomplishments just announced up front. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that this is just, you know, I, I think the hardest thing to do is to write your own bio. Uh, <laughs> well, and to make it sound both, uh, you know, worthy of, of praise and also humble, you know, you know, not just to be braggy. It's a, it's a, a tight a tight a tight what's the word a tightrope that we walk <laughs> yeah but also i'm sure that there you know people that know you are going to be like what georgia you didn't mention a and you didn't mention b and and those were like really amazing things so it's really hard to you know who who said uh, uh i'm sorry that my letter is so long i didn't have a chance to write a short one <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> I forget who it was, but somebody will remind us. But Georgia, thank you for coming back to Broadway Radio. It's so exciting, and I asked you to come back on because your new amazing album, A Quiet Revolution, has been released by Concord Theatricals and Craft Records, Yay. and you have put together just an incredible list of, of performers to sing your music. We'll say um, Sutton Foster, Laura Benanti, Joshua Henry, Kate Baldwin, Norm Lewis, Jeremy Jordan, Betsy Wolf, Jessica Vosk, and more. So, I mean, uh, this is such an, uh, you know, you, you've been planning this album, I'm sure, for a year or more, and who knew that when you were planning to release it digitally on April 10th, that on April 10th, the entire world would be sitting in their residences or apartments or homes or wherever they live and and can't get out there. So uh, what's it like to release an album in this uh, in this environment? Well, I'll tell you I'll tell you a lot. We so much thought went into the release date. It's really interesting to think about it in hindsight now with the the way the world changed. But the specific reason we chose April 10th was about trying to beat Tony season, trying to get, yeah. mm-hmm. trying to get the album out in the tiny little gap when people have come out of January, February, winter hibernation, 
March is kind of busy with benefits, and then there's this little gap in April when um, when people are back into their normal routine. Theater people are back into their normal routine, but the press of Tony season hasn't started yet. And we really thought if we wait till April, the end of April, it'll be too late, and I'll be trying to compete with you know yeah. all the all the shows and all the actors and everybody who's who's trying to get attention. So there there were like two dates that were viable for releasing, and we decided on April 10th. I even remember having a conversation about Passover and. Easter and is it a problem? Is it a problem to release an album on a holiday weekend and uh, just so much strategy? Um, and then, of course, <laughs> very and little of that all went out the w- window. <laughs> um, yeah, the I started recording in October, uh, and that's even that's a little bit of a white lie because Jeremy Jordan and I recorded um, prepared years ago. That one has been sitting in my hard drive. Um, really? Yeah, we recorded that song. Um, I'd have to look up the date. I mean, at least three or four years ago. And um, and I, I recorded it. He and I had just made the last five years movie. We were spending a lot of time together. I said, oh, I have a song I'd love for you to record. And he said, yes. And I got him into the studio and recorded it. And I thought that was the beginning of my album that I didn't make for several more years. Um, and then when this, when, when I started it last fall, putting this album together, I thought, oh, good. I'll finally have a place to put Prepared, the song that Jeremy recorded. And I wrote him and I said, do you remember that you recorded this song for me? And he said, oh, I wondered what happened to that. I'm glad you're finally releasing it. Um, and of course, we doctored up the track a little bit, put some more instruments on it and made it fit with the rest of the album. But that one is very old. And then um, and then the rest of it has just been this uh, this work list since October, you know, brainstorming about which songs should be on the album and what the statement of the album should be. And, you know, I had a lot of conversations with, my record producer and the label and my husband and about um, how people don't really listen to albums in the same way. It's uh, I, when I was growing up, you'd put on an album and listen to it top to bottom and have the experience of the album. And now I think it's more like a poo-poo platter. You pick the tracks that you want to listen to and you make playlists and you only download what you want. And I said, but I still, I don't want it to feel like this is my audition book. These are the songs I know. These are the songs I wrote. I still want it to make a statement. And so I thought about what do I have that feels like it's now. It feels like 2020. It feels like what we're experiencing collectively now. Um, And then, of course, to answer your question, to get back to your original question, by the time it came out, (laughs) I was making a different statement than I thought I was. But um but yeah, there you go. That's that's 2020. Well, I, I was going to talk about prepared. What a heartbreaking song! Thanks. Uh, so Jeremy, Is that the right? Je- excuse me. I said thank you. I think is that the right response? Yeah, <laughs> I, I I know it, it's uh, it's so uh, your liner notes for it. It's so personal. It, it's just heartbreaking. Um, and Jeremy Thanks. Jordan, what a what a what an interpretation of the song the gist of the song is that that you're never prepared for what is coming in life and um i i don't want to give away all of it but we'll play a little clip of it right here all of her papers were in order nothing was left unsigned we had the hard conversations about what she was leaving behind. There were some moments of laughter. She promised she wasn't scared. 
But I wasn't prepared I wasn't prepared uh, You know, you said that you recorded this many years ago with Jeremy. Uh, is If you were to write prepared as uh, a new thought today, would it be different? Or what is your process like and... How has you know? How has life informed the, the way in which you you approach a song? I if I wrote prepared now, I'm not sure it would be different. You know, you're. I think you're referencing um, a little blurb that I wrote for Playbill. A little, yeah. Where I talked a little bit about mm-hmm. each song, and and the story that you're referencing is that um, my grandmother uh, was living in an assisted living home, and uh, it was one of those people who was actually thinking about her own mortality and had written her funeral, what hymns she wanted sung at her funeral. And she had um, a folder that she kept by her front door that said, if I die, here are the papers that you need. Not if I die, when I die, these are the papers that you will need. Um, and this is, you know, passcodes and, and where my bank box is and you know, just all the things mm-hmm. that you know, and I, I remember thinking at the time, like, what does that feel like to be, to really be, to, to know that it's coming? She was, you know, in her late 80s, early 90s, to know that that's coming so surely and to have major peace with it. And then, um, and then what does it feel to lose someone who was prepared and re- realize that no matter how many papers are in the folder, you're not prepared for what's emotionally coming. Um, and that, that was the place where the, where I think the song was born for me to answer that. How do you do what you do? I think, um, I'm really interested in, in the moments of heightened emotion that people experience. And I find that I'm really interested in, in the ones that we all experience, the things that are universal that I haven't heard songs written about before. You know, there's, um, there are lots of, I, I love him, but he doesn't love me sort of songs or how, you know, just there are certain emotions that we all experience that I, I think, well, I could make you a playlist of 20 songs that are about that. And good ones, you know, songs that I love and songs that informed me. But I'm really excited when I stumble on an idea and I think that's something that we all feel and I've never heard a song about that before. And that was the sort of light bulb that went off when I thought about the idea for Prepared, the idea that um, that I've never heard a song about this this kind of grief. I mean, there are songs about grief, but this kind of grief. And then you know, there are so- other songs on the album that, that fall into that category as well. So... Uh, did you sit down and write prepared as a standalone song or is it sort of towards an idea of a thought of uh, a show that you have in mind or, and how does that work for you? Uh, are you writing for shows? Are you writing for standalone songs and, or is it a mix? I do both. I write for shows and I write for standalone songs. Um, I remember reading that Stephen Sondheim said he had never written for a, uh, never written a song that wasn't in a show. And I yeah. thought I, uh-huh. I would, I would never finish anything because this shows take forever <laughs> to get produced. Um, but but this one, in fact, um, you know, after maybe even after my first album in uh, in yeah, maybe after my first album, I had the idea that that I think people started writing me and saying, "Can we take your songs and make a show out of them? Make a review out of them?" And I thought, oh, I should do that. You I, instead of letting other people do it, I yeah. should do it. Mm-hmm. And I have spent probably. 12 to 15 years trying to figure out how to do that. I have a version of a show that I wrote with David Kirschenbaum 
a version of a show that I wrote with Jamie Pacino. Um, and uh, there was one called Sing Me a Happy Song. And then there was one called The Danger Year. Um, and they were all trying to take pre-existing material and build a review around them. And inevitably, uh, there are a few pieces that, that anchor the show and you're like, well, this will be there and this will be there. And then you find you don't have the song that does, you don't have the group number, you don't have the comedy number, you don't have the whatever the show is going to need. And so I found myself writing those songs and before long, uh, the original material wasn't working so well anymore. And so I'd replace that with a new song. <laughs> and a lot of these, so a lot of the songs on this album were from something that I was calling the danger year, which was an attempt to make a review. And I, um, I mean, my hat is off to Maltby and Shire and, <laughs> <laughs> and the people who successfully did it because I, I now for years have not been able to make it work. Ultimately, um, you, you find yourself wanting to make a story where there is no story or you're trying to link characters together that aren't, that aren't actually linked or why are these people all in the same space, those sorts of questions. Um, so now there's this huge body of work for, for songs that were written for that purpose that actually have no home. And that, you know, that was when I thought, well, I have to record, I have to make a recording, otherwise these songs just die. And Prepared was one of them. There was a, a Prepared was part of The Danger Year and was written, Jamie Pacino and I, had written an outline, and there was a moment where there was a character who uh, lost his mother, and I thought, okay, so I'm going to write about that, about the loss of the loss of someone that you know is going to die, and you're not ready to let go of, um, and that's that's where the song was born. Hey, you have any chance of bringing Jamie back east? <laughs> Jamie Spicino is a, um, a fantastic playwright and now an executive producer, TV writer with a hugely successful career in Los Angeles. Um, so she comes east to visit and to, to do business in New York. She and I are trying to crack an idea for another show. Um, you know, it, it is, as, all with, as with any um, cross-country collaboration, it is hard with uh, both the time signs time zones and the commitments of her career, which are different from the commitments of my career, but she's one of my best friends and favorite writers. And I, you know, I hope we can find the thing that we write together because she's really, really brilliant. And when you do a show with her, you have a built-in sound designer. <laughs> That's right. Her husband is Lindsay Jones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're both these, uh, these writers married to composers. We, that might've been one of the first things that bonded us. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things uh, that uh, it's not surprising to me, but I, I'm going to state the obvious here, is that all your songs uh, on this album, in fact, I think all your songs I've ever heard, um, are story songs. And uh, they have a beginning, middle, and end. And it's very reminiscent of some writers like a Billy Joel. Uh, who were you, some of your favorite writers as you were growing up? I mean, I, I'm i just a huge product of uh, the time I grew up. The, the Indigo Girls were heroic to me. Uh, yeah. uh, Story songs and harmonies and complicated music, figuring out how to use, you know, more than just your traditional pop chords and, and musicality to um, to make you feel things deeply emotional and to use the, the blend of their voices. And, um, and they write amazing story songs and dig deep into... Um, emotion and questions of faith and, and 
I just found them wonder. I find them wonderful. And, um, and Joni Mitchell, of course, I, I mean, I, Billy Joel, yes, but I think I've, I've learned more Billy Joel in, in my adult years than as a child. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that he was someone I listened to. I was, a, I listened to classical music a lot and I listened to show tunes. I mean, I, I remember sitting in my bedroom with a cassette of Into the Woods and rewinding it over and over and over and over again until I memorized all of the words. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm still working on that. Giants in the sky, just over and over and over again. Um, <laughs> but I do think the beginning, middle, and end is part of how I think about songwriting. And I, I do have pop songs. I, I don't mean this to sound defensive. I do have some pop songs that don't do what the theater songs do. I, they just don't fit on these albums. <laughs> mm-hmm, and the, sure. the art songs, too, the classical art songs, maybe are um, a little bit less story-driven. Um their settings of poetry and things like that. But, um, but I think that's what I'm interested in is the character and, and, and the way you tell the stories and the way connecting with someone else's story makes you feel and makes you have empathy and makes you, um, in the same way that reading a really good novel sends you into another world and, and makes you think about what it would be like to be that person. That to me is what, what I want it. That's how I want to connect with the audience is to make someone feel for this character that is imaginary. (laughs) I want to play a little clip of Stop with uh, Sutton Foster right now. When I was a girl, I was fearless. Ran like I would never trip or fall. Lived without this need for approval. Still. Stop come about, and what was your, uh, you know, would you have any additional thoughts about Stop? Stop, I wrote Stop in 2012. Stop is an old song for me. It is, wow. it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable to me that the, the way this happened. In fact, Stop has been out there. If you Google it, you see other people recording it. The sheet music is out there in the world. It, it, it's not new. This recording is new. Um, and this, you know, the, the, the track that we built and the, the way that, the way that this, this recording sounds is new, but the song is not new. And we were talking about story songs, but to me, Stop is a story song about a girl in the second, a woman in the second verse. She says, when I was a girl, I was fearless. I ran like I could never trip and fall. Um, what I wouldn't give to feel that freedom. And it's a story song about a woman who is feeling trapped by the obligations of the world and how much of her world is in her little phone. And she thinks, what if I disconnect? What if I just release myself from that pressure and, and check back in with what is me? And maybe, maybe my sense of humanity and sense of self is not in my phone. Maybe that's what I need to do. So to me, that's the story that I was telling. And that is what I was feeling in 2012 to, yeah, I said 2012, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that to me is what I was feeling then. It's what I continue to feel. And to be honest, when we first started working on 
Sing Me a Happy Song, The Danger Year, whatever this review was, uh, my agent at the time, different from my current agent, said, um, she said, yeah, I'm not sure that the idea of being disconnected from our phones is so revelatory, um, is such a revelation. It, uh, everybody's writing about that. We all know it's not a new idea, this idea of like turning off your phones, right? We get it, we get it. And I, so I sort of put it on the back burner because I thought, all right, well, if it's not an original thought, if it's not, if people aren't going to be interested in it, then I guess it, and that might be, it might be that that's part of why it languished for so long. I'm not sure that I didn't think it was such a big idea. But then when I was putting this album together, it felt like the finale. It felt like the thing that summed up the whole album is sort of about, um, trying to keep up with the pace of the world and the things that make us, um, the things that make us feel human are not the same as the things that make us feel productive. Um, and that maybe we're losing our ability to connect with ourselves. And to me, that was what stop really said the most clearly. And the album ends with a heartbeat. You know, the song ends with a heartbeat and the album ends with a heartbeat. And I thought that is to me how you get back down to the essential core of who you are as you check back in with yourself. And you, um, when you wrote Stop, you wrote it in 2012, did you uh, write it with Sutton in mind or? No, not at all. And in fact, um, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I wrote that one with anyone in particular in mind. Um, I, you know, it's a big sing. It's a big, belty, hard yeah. sing. So, I, uh, of course, all of the fantastic female leading lady belter women uh, I had them in mind, but Lindsay Mendez recorded it. Julia, I mean, uh, uh, sang it at a concert that's on YouTube mm -hmm. and Julia Murney sang it and Cynthia Erivo sang it in London when I did a concert at the Garrick theater. Um, and so I've, I've managed to have some big voices sing it. Um, Sutton and I have, we, we got to be close friends, uh, when we did sweet charity together in, um, 2015, 2016, and stayed in touch, and now I music direct for her sometimes uh, for her concerts. Uh, and and I just when I was thinking about who who would be a great voice for this, she I wanted to offer it to her so that she could because I knew it was going to be a big track this time, and I wanted um, I wanted I wanted her to be the person who represented it. Uh, tell me about before I lose my mind uh, this tri <laughs> trio track, uh, very high energy, funny. Uh, uh, reminiscent of not getting married today, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I like that. <laughs> um, well, that was another one that I wrote at one point for the danger year. The idea of the danger year was that there were three women and two men. Um, there is a, I, I have learned, I'm not an expert on this, but I've learned that there's a concept in Japan called the danger year, that there are certain years in a person's life um, that are known to be, crisis years that are known to be, uh, years that are harder. Like, uh, one, when men turn, uh, 42, that's a crisis year, <laughs> 60, um, for women, I, I have to look it up again. I think it was, uh, maybe 29, 33, 37, something like that. Of course, by the time I was writing the show, I had already passed all of my crisis years. Um, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. The idea that people are in known crisis at the same time, the reason that I couldn't make it work is because if everyone's always in crisis all the time, it's hard mm -hmm. to it's hard yeah. to sustain a show. Um, 
And uh, anyway, but this idea was that these three women uh, in the review needed something to sing together. And this was the thing that they shared was this, you know, relentless to-do list that you wake up in the morning. This to me is part of being a contemporary woman. Maybe it's just being a contemporary human. But for me, it's like you wake up in the morning, you have one moment of bliss, and then your to-do list starts ticking in your head. And um, and by the end of the day, the to-do list has gotten so relentless that you're looking for your escape route. <laughs> you're looking for your online Googling trips to Cancun and your online Googling, you know, <laughs> opening your second bottle of wine or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so that was the foundation for this song was what are the, what are the things that these women have in common that they're just the sense that no matter how productive you are, you're, you're failing because you can't keep up. Gotta keep the finish line in sight. Gotta make a list of all the people I need to call today. Got about a week until my roots take over and I'm completely great. Gotta grab my breakfast on the run. Gotta make sure everything gets done before I lose my mind. Before I Use the tweezers on my brow and never had to pluck them until now. Gotta send an email to my dad. Gotta buy a brand new mask. So Caitlin Kanunen, Heidi Blickenstaff, and Amber Iman are the trio on this track. Have you worked with them before? Um, I have. I, yes. I mean, all of them in, in various ways. Uh, Amber was the newest to me, and I've heard Amber perform... Uh, elsewhere and done a benefit with her. Uh, but this was the first time she sung any of my music, but Heidi Blickenstaff and I, uh, Heidi, I wrote mosaic for Heidi. It's a one act, one woman show that she premiered many years ago. Um, and she recorded not yet on my last album, which was also from mosaic. And then Caitlin, I knew because of bridges in Madison County, which my husband wrote. And, um, and so I knew her through that, but then I started asking her to sing my own music and she did a concert presentation of Samantha Spade, Ace detective where she played the title role. So I have relationships, work relationships with all of them. Um, yeah. And then Elena shadow sang that trio once and Jessica Vosk has sung it, sung it before. Um, so it, it, I, it's just a fun way to get three great singers, comedians together um, to, to sing in three-part harmony and belt their faces off. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. So let's talk about some of your, uh, some of your projects. Uh, Snow Child down at uh, Arena in 2018, uh, what was that experience like? That, that experience was a dream. It, um, Molly Smith is the artistic director of Arena Stage, and she's just a force to be reckoned with. She's an amazing leader and she's a fantastic director. And she read the novel Snow Child and said, I think this is a musical. And then she put the team together. So it was, uh, Bob Banghart is a, I, I say bluegrass musician. And I think he, you know, he, his hackles get raised a little <laughs> bit because he's like, it's not bluegrass. It's not just bluegrass. It's a traditional, you know, he calls it trad music. Anyway, he plays the mandolin and the fiddle and the guitar, and you and I would call it bluegrass music. Um, and uh, so he, he is my collaborator. He and I are sharing m the music responsibilities of the show. I wrote the lyrics, and then John Strand is the playwright who wrote the book, and uh, he's in Washington, D.C. And Molly nurtured this process. She commissioned all of us, and she nurtured this process where we, um, we, she brought us down to D.C. several times, you know, to read the first 30 pages of the script and the first four or five songs, and then read all of Act 1, and then read all of Act 2, and then get actors in, and just this very long process of um, development. 
that was committed to a production at the end. And, and when we got into production, there were puppets and puppeteers. And, um, you know, I brought in Lynn Schenkel to orchestrate and music supervise. And so then we had all these fantastic, uh, all those instruments, mandolin, fiddle, guitar, upright bass, banjo, and piano keyboard, um, and wonderful actors. So everything about it was great, except that we uh, finished and then couldn't get a second production for a hundred reasons, I think, none of which I'm exactly clear about, but all the reasons why shows get first productions and not second productions. So now we are back in the uh, in the development process and we're doing rewrites uh, and trying to solve some of what we think the problems are so that we can um, continue to build the show and ultimately get, you know, a, a production that... The goal is always to get a production that allows you to license the show and get a cast yeah. album made so that it can go out into the world. And we're still a few steps away from that. But I will say it is, um, it's a beautiful story about um, a couple in 1922 that moves from Pennsylvania to Alaska to homestead the land, which was part of the Homesteading Act in America. Uh, this idea that if you were willing to live on land in Alaska for five years and be self-sustained, mm-hmm. um, then you got to keep the land. The land was yours. And so this is a couple that lost a child and was in so much grief that they needed to start over. And so they move to Alaska and shortly within the first year of being there, the woman, the wife hears a child singing in the woods and, um, and finds this builds a relationship with this child. And it is questionable through the whole show, whether the child is real or whether the child is a figment of her imagination or manifestation of her grief. The child appears to be magical and can make it snow and, can talk to the animals and is kind of a product of nature. Um, and so it's an exploration of wilderness and loss and loneliness and grief and how we fill the spaces inside us. Um, anyway, I love it very much and I hope we get to keep working on it. It sounds really wonderful. I was so sad that I didn't get down to, uh, to a arena to see it, but um, I'm really looking forward to the next incarnations of it. Thank you. you. Me too. You're working on uh, The Big Boom with Hunter Foster. Tell us about what that is. Well, that one. what's interesting about that one is that Hunter and I have been writing it for years. We've done a few developmental processes out of town and um, in various writers' retreats, and Lauren Kennedy brought us down to Theater Raleigh to work on it for a bit there. Um, but, but he has been so busy, and I've been so busy, that we haven't um, prioritized it. And now that everyone's in quarantine – he and I have recommitted to this project. So we're meeting twice a week on, you know, virtually we're meeting twice a week and we've made more progress in the last month than we probably have in the year preceding it. So Hmm. I can now talk about it like it is moving forward because it finally is. Um, This show, the big boom is a story about um, a man, a a patriarch of a family who believes one of those preachers who says that the world is going to end at a certain date at a certain time. And um, he gathers his family together in the cabin in the mountains of North Carolina because he wants them all to be together when the world ends. And so his three grown children and their extended families all show up in this cabin um, with varying degrees of things that they believe in and grudges that they carry and um, their own internal conflicts and all. And, and, and what it does 
the the essential question that Hunter and I are looking at is um, what does it mean to love someone even when you don't believe what they believe? Um, and and ultimately, it's about we think dad's crazy, and and ultimately, dad has. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out what not to give away, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You find out early on that dad has uh, like sold the cabin and sold the stock and sold everything because we're not going to need it where we're going, and sure. so the the rage that the family has that he's taken their future and jeopardized it. Um, but then what it means to, to try to love someone through what they believe or what it means to not belittle someone because you don't understand what they believe. And that's what we explore in the, in the piece. And, um, so it has been fun. And (laughs) of course, right now we're writing a piece about the end of the world where it sort of feels like (laughs) we're living in apocalyptic times anyway. Um, it's yeah. So we'll see. We're, uh, we're we're further along than we thought we were. Once we really dug in and re-outlined it and restructured it, we're like, oh, I think we have more of this than we thought we did. So maybe maybe we're closer to being able to present it than we thought we were. Am I remembering this correctly? Hunter Foster is now an artistic director of a theater, isn't he? That's right. The Red House Arts up in yeah. Syracuse. Yeah, he's the artistic director of the theater there. He and I met on Little Shop of Horrors when he played Seymour, and I was the associate conductor <laughs> on Broadway. And I mean, we knew each other, but I, that's yeah. when we got to be friends. Sure. And um, a few years after that, I found out that he was writing, and because uh, he, he's a great book writer, just a really great book writer and director. And, um, and I was like, oh, you're writing. We should write something together. And then we lived in that phase for years. And then finally, I think we had coffee or lunch or something and said, well, what, who, who are we? Like, if we wrote, what would we write about? And one of the things that we found we had in common is we're both Southern and we both grew up in, um, Christian Southern households and then moved North in and got, uh, made careers and lives in the arts and, and, and have wrestled with how that rate, how being raised as a Southern Christian person how you reckon that with who you have become. And, and we both said, I, I get so sick of the stereotypes of you see pieces about Southern people and they're just hillbillies or they're stupid or they're, um, you know, they're single dimensioned or that their religion is their flaw. Um, and we said, I think Southern people are more complicated than that. And religion and your, your relationship with faith can be more beautiful than that. You know, um, I married someone, I married a Jew, and and so our life became very different and very multicultural. I don't want to say multicultural, that's not a fair word, but but religion is is a more complicated thing or more nuanced thing in this household than it was in the household I grew up in. And um, and my uh, understanding of it is different, and Hunter's relationship and life is different too. And we thought, well, I just want to write about how we grew up in a way that honors what it was and what it offered us and um, and allows those people to be real humans and real uh, worthy of attention characters. With both of your Southern roots, I think you and Hunter should write the musical comedy called uh, Bless Your Heart. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm sure that will make its way into this show at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you are also working on another show called Blind Spot with, uh, is it Chisa Hutchinson? That's right, Chisa Hutchinson. Yes, that is the very, very, very beginning. But that, mm-hmm. um, we have an outline and um, and the beginning of an idea. Well, how can I, what can I say about this? Uh, 
Chisa and I have had many conversations. She's a fantastic playwright. um, And many conversations about how in an effort to be an ally to someone who's different from you, you can stick your foot in your mouth in a big way and actually Mm. make things worse. You know, like like to try to be woke or to try to be um, an ally. Like uh, Chisa is a black woman. I'm a white woman. And we're like both of us saying like, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. And uh, at a certain point I could say something that is totally offensive to her and with, with the best intentions. And, and how do you reckon with that? And how sometimes the, the most woke people are actually making things worse. And so this is a comedy about uh, a university where uh, what some people call political correctness and some people call wokeness and some people just call, you know, being informed and enlightened. Uh, Everybody who is trying to do the right thing winds up messing things up and comedy ensues. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really offensive nerve jangling uh, comedy that makes you think, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, this is horrible. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. And you're also uh, spending some time with Titus Burgess. I am. Yeah. Titus, I, uh, I, yeah, I have a, the beginning of a piece for choir and soloists. The very first piece I wrote for Titus and choir and, um, and he came over and I played it for him and he said, I love this, I'm in. And and now I'm spinning out the rest of it. There are conversations with big choirs around the country about how you premiere it. Um, and in some ways, I think maybe this shutdown right now is, is the universe telling me to finish that piece. It's hard mm. to finish it because... Um, it's hard to, for me, I'm finding it's hard to write when you don't know who's going to do it. You know, it's very hard for me to think I'm going to spend months and months and months writing this piece and then it might just sit there. It might, you know, so it's hard if you're not in a relationship with an organization or a person or somebody on the other end who, um, who says, I'll do this, which is what I, the, the gift that I got from Arena Stage, write this and here's when we're going to premiere it. Um, writing in a vacuum is really hard and we're all in a vacuum right now. So I saw Titus recently and he was giving me a hard time about not having finished it. And, and I was like, I know, I know, I know, I'll do it. And he said, I need it. I need it right now. I need oh. you to do this piece. I need you to do it because I need to sing it. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, there's the person on the other yeah. end that mm-hmm. he'll do it. So now now it's now it's been on your radio program. So we have a commitment <laughs> from Titus Burgess that he's going to do it. <laughs> and that I'm going to finish it. There you go. There's my commitment. So I neglected to when we were talking about A Quiet Revolution to talk about Jeffrey Lesser. Broadway fans know Jeffrey. He's a music producer. He's an engineer, voiceover, sound designer. He's in television, film, theater. He's done everything from Ariana, Ariana Grande to Barbra Streisand and so many cast recordings for Broadway shows. He has four Emmy Awards. Um, I mean... Uh, my children knew him from the Wonder Pets. Yeah. <laughs> the one, the phone, the phone is ringing. <laughs> Isn't it funny what makes you famous? I know. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's Lynn Aaron's, you know, for Schoolhouse Rock. You know right. that 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 was my introduction to the writers of you know my favorite year in Ragtime and all the other things that Aaron's and Flaherty did was you know I'm just a Bill Will. So anyway, <laughs> so Jeffrey Lesser. Yeah. I mean this. Obviously, when you listen to this, this your CD, um, it is just gorgeous and full and just amazing, 
amazing sound, which is a lot of what Jeffrey did. So, you know, how did you hook up with Jeffrey? Well, Jeffrey's done all of my albums. He's done all four of my albums, and he's done all of Jason's albums. Uh, we haven't said Jason Robert Brown is my husband. He's done all of Jason's albums, all the cast albums, all the solo albums. I, I call him Jason Robert Stitt. <laughs> well, well, secretly, I'll let you okay. know that I enjoy that very much. All right. <laughs> <laughs> he does all of Mr. Stitt's albums, and he um, <laughs> he uh, he's a part of our family. I mean, he's... He's a musical collaborator and like a brother to us, and uh, and he makes amazing hamburgers, and uh, he's <laughs> he's just a, a, a wonderful collaborator, and um and and a set of ears that I trust so implicitly. He comes to all of the concerts. He comes to Jason's concerts. He comes to my concerts. He knows the music inside and out. He um he mixes them at home. He's in the studio at every step along the way. He and I have a lot of pre-production conversations about what we want it to sound like and what we want it to be and the order of the songs and, um, you know, every, what, what the, what the fingerprint of this, of, of this album, this statement is. So he, and he's so musical. Um, if you look closely at the liner notes, you'll see that he actually played the tambourine on one of the tracks. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I played the sandpaper blocks on one of the tracks. Um, <laughs> just in the, like when you're in the final mix. And then there are things like, if you listen closely, there's a recording of The Water is Wide and it's just piano in the middle of a highly produced album. And Jeffrey was the one that said, what if we put the sound of water at the beginning and the end? And I was like, oh, that's corny. No, 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 that's corny. That's not what this album is. And he said, no, just just try it. Let me try it and I'll send you and I have an idea for how it will make you feel. And I think he was right. Once I, he's very good at making me say, like, very good at the, just try it. Just, just, this might be a crazy idea, but just try it. Um, and I think the way it feels like a breath and a meditation in the middle of the album, he was exactly right. It, it's much stronger than I think that track would have been if it was just piano. So, um, so I give him a lot of credit for that. And also just his commitment and the back and forth um, is wonderful. He and I are already well into our next album, I'll say. I have oh, an album. Um, of art songs uh, in previous albums of mine you'll notice there's like pop song pop, pop song pop song and then one little art song buried in the middle and then pop song um, and this time I had enough pop songs and enough art songs that I decided to separate them out so the pop song album is the one that we just released A Quiet Revolution and the art song album is coming and I already have recordings from Rebecca Luker and uh, Andrea Jones Sajola and Kelly O'Hara and Mark Kudish is committed to one that we were scheduled to record and then we couldn't because of the the shutdown. So as soon as we're back, we'll go into the studio with Mark Kudish um, and more. There are more coming, but it's uh, more of a celebration of the legit Broadway voice and more art songy. That's awesome. It's very exciting to hear this something new to look forward to uh, coming down the pipe. <laughs> yeah. And finally, uh, contract. Concord Theatricals is uh, has released this your album, uh, and Concord is becoming just the place for uh, Broadway artists. I mean, it's amazing with Sean Patrick Flavin and um, Ted Chapin there, and all the other folks over at Concord. They they are, um, I shouldn't say slowly but surely, but quickly becoming. Uh, a, a huge force on Broadway. Uh, how long have you worked with Concord? Uh, I've been signed with Concord 
it's probably about two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they license uh, Samantha Spade, Ace Detective, my mm-hmm. children's musical. So uh, around the time I signed, uh, they, they took over my publishing and, um, and uh, they licensed that piece uh, for, I mean, for anyone, but really it's, it's geared yeah. towards children and educational uh, middle school and high school kids. Um, but I guess the, the not so secret secret is that Sean and I were in grad school together. Sean Flavin and I mm-hmm. are the same age and moved to New York the same week and went to NYU orientation together mm-hmm. and then were in grad school for two years and have been friends ever since. So he, he is actually my oldest friend and he's the first person I met in New York when I moved to New York. And, um, and I tell young people and my kids and, and other young people all the time that you never know who, who's going to wind up growing up in the business with you together. You know, that was in 1995, uh, that we were, we went to orientation and started graduate school and, um, and stories about like high school musical things that I music directed and he played in the pit and things of mine that he orchestrated and just a long history of, um, of being friends and collaborators. And now he's the president of a company and I'm a songwriter and he signed me and off you go. So that relationship has certainly paid off and for both of us and been very fulfilling also to have like a friend and collaborator in the industry to talk about, Hey, have you heard about this thing? And he and I sit on many committees together and, um, it's it's a very um a very mutually wonderful relationship and um and I am very excited to see what he and his team have done at Concord uh to just support and promote the work of so many artists. I met Sean Oh my goodness. Uh I would right nineteen nine in the nineties or so through a cash recording uh mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. And, I think I knew you then too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, such a small world, but absolutely true. You you never know who you're going to meet. Random. That's where I met Jason. I met Jason yep. through Rec Arts Theater musicals back in the er, early Rad M in the early nineties. Yep. Before Jason had written any anything that was produced. Yep. So. Georgia, thank you so much for spending time with us on Broadway Radio. Um, remind everybody that Quiet Revolution from uh, Craft Record Recordings and Concord Theatricals is now available in digital release. And it's going to be available in physical release on May 1st. Uh, and you can get it all the normal places. We'll have links to everything in the show notes where you can catch up with uh, Georgia and buy the CD. And Georgia, let's, uh, let's talk again soon, okay? Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Diane Fossey lost her life because she loved an ape. Margaret Thatcher lost her country any way you spin it. Amelia Earhart lost her plane. Too bad she was still.